Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Nancy Novak. She's the Chief Innovation Officer at Compass Data Centers. Great, Nancy, uh, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so I guess you've had a very long history in construction. Was that your original plan to get into construction? Yes, actually, um, you know, my dad was a general superintendent for one of the largest builders in the world. So I spent many a summer on a project site with him and fell in love with the industry. And that's really how I, how I got into it. So my, my intention was always to be in this industry. Yeah, for sure. And then you were with one company for a very long time, 20 years is quite a career at that company. What are some highlights staying in one spot? What are your thoughts there? I love talking about this because I've worked for a company for 20 years and I, I did raise to the executive ranks. You know, I, I got to, I was a part owner and, you know, um, got to run a region. It was the only woman who was an executive in that company for the last seven years of my career there. But it was wonderful because I, um, you know, I was able to retire quite young and then go explore other avenues of the same passion that I have only, um, you know, using my skills in a different way. I relocated 17 times with Kids in Tow. My highlights are, you know, fun things like building, you know, a launch facility for Lockheed, um, doing the Pentagon renovation and, uh, you know, building museums and just some of the most iconic projects across the nation. I just kind of fell in love with, you know, the, I fell in love with the industry because you never stop learning. So every time you build for someone, you learn about that industry. So if you build a hospital, you learn about, you know, healthcare. And if you build a, you know, office building or a military installation, you learn about, you know, what they're doing. And I like being plugged in like that. It was a great, great career. Then I retired for about three and a half years and I traveled the world, literally went to 40 different countries and started learning more about the things that I'm passionate about. And I was very, very lucky and serendipitously got back into the business using my knowledge and drawing from my experience but not actually having to be on the front line running work anymore. So I now I have the best job in the world as chief innovation officer. Great. Lots to talk there. So let's, let's go back to when you talked about different industries learning. So obviously when you're building for, like you said, a different industry, there are certain things you need to know to be effective at your job. What was that process for you? Like, because obviously some of these areas, you, you may have not had a lot of background beforehand. How did you approach learning and getting up to speed quickly? I mean, in the built environment, the way I look at it and the way my company was, I had a very, very diverse portfolio, as I just mentioned, is, you know, anything is buildable as long as you know the principles of building. And a lot of it's relation-based, right? I mean, one of my superpowers I felt was um, the ability to, you know, write contract language that got everybody kind of aligned and, and collaborative and, and cooperative, right? So I, and I think that makes a big difference. But honestly, when it came to, you know, being able to win work and manage work with the different clients that I was so fascinated with. A lot of that is what I call the, the challenger approach. And that is kind of understanding their business and their business challenges in a, in a way that allows you to communicate with them so that as you're delivering, 
you can help them be successful, not just on the delivery of the project, but in their business overall. And I have a great example of that if you want me to share it. Sure, absolutely. So when I was uh, when I was working on, on the launch pad down at Cape Canaveral for Lockheed, they were tight on the budget, very evolving project where they were still trying to develop the launch vehicle. And it was you know kind of exciting and, and it wasn't really set in stone when we started work there. So one of the things they asked us to do midway was to eliminate what they call heavy lift because on their manifest, they didn't have a lot of heavy lift, you know, to do. And so I, so they said, we really would like to save a little bit of money and, you know, cut this out. So because I understood their business and I understood, you know, what they were getting ready to try to do, I flew to, you know, their headquarters and I said, look, you'll save a few million dollars, but this will literally put you out of the launch business for two years if you, if you end up having to do heavy lift later. And because of that, they decided not to take that out. And now they are the most successful launch program um, that that particular pad is um, using heavy lift. And they're very grateful for the fact that we were able to step in and say, the consequences are much larger than you think they're going to be. Not a good decision, right? Yeah. That's a challenger approach. And that's, an, that's a client that ends up you know, feeling like you, know, you really understood them. They ended up awarding us the Vandenberg unsolicited, you know, because they said you guys were partners with us. We had great visibility and it was really fun. It made it a lot of fun. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, heavy lift for, for people that don't know what, what it was that. Oh, so that's like when you can launch a bus into space, basically. So it's the big satellites or the manned missions that go in, you know, go beyond low orbit. So those are the heavy lifts, the big vehicles. Got it. Good. So you mentioned something about contract language that facilitates some sort of collaboration. Give me an example of what you mean by that in terms of creating alignment. Well, I mean, it's not the, it's not like a one size fits all, right? But it's, it's definitely um, getting creative and putting yourself in other people's shoes. So if, whether it's transparency or open book or, or design obligations, you know, and trying to share risk, those are all good approaches. But I guess the easiest way to explain it is like when you're when you're looking at the what I call the rights and remedies or the terms and conditions of a contract, it's interesting because you know everyone everyone gets wrapped around the axle over the legal language, right? And a lot of lawyers who you you know they that's how they make their living. And I've always told my managers, I said, look, don't touch any of that language. Get with your subcontractors or your specialty trades or whoever and discuss with them what scares them about certain language. And then in layman's terms, just write an amendment that says, we're not going to treat you that way and amend the contract so that there's this really good, um, you know, tangible explanation and, and dialogue that says, you know, we, you know, I mean, it's all about how you administer the contract. I don't want to mess with the legalities of it, but if you're afraid of what something says, because you think we're going to treat you in a way that we have no intention of, I'm happy to write language that solves that, right? Got it. Some very, very specific language that, you know, maybe it doesn't change the uh, the spirit of the agreement or what was put there, but essentially just ruling out some of the, the bad case scenarios that are running around in people's head. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. It's experience space where they're like, well, this one thing happened to me before. I'm afraid the same thing might happen again. Um, and, you know, entering your relationship most of the time, you know, people want to be fair to each other, but there's always reasons why these clauses are, are put into contracts and, um, and they can be scary. So I'm like, let's bring it down to that layman's terms level. And then the other thing is 
you know, just really kind of, again, putting yourself in other shoes, like understanding how they make money, how they solicit work. So if you're an owner who wants to get a cutthroat low bid, and then you're upset because somebody left out some scope that was somewhat ambiguous, that's like you want in your cake and eat it too. Like you just have to have the reasonable lens that says, if I were you, you know, that I would, this is how I would feel about that. It's a little bit of empathy, I would say. And that is one thing I have to say, I'm going to give Lockheed another shout out, but they were really great about negotiating the contract with us and saying that they wouldn't sign, they wouldn't want to give us language that they wouldn't sign themselves. Mm. I think that's a really good practice, you know, to, to always use. And um, the other thing that was really impressive was, and I, and, the, and we had the very similar language on the Pentagon, and this is where the rewards go right to the people who have the tools in their hands, right? So we're going to, you know, we're really going to encourage positive reinforcement and behavior for good work from the people who are actually putting the work in place. So that's impressive. I mean, on the Cape Canaveral job, I had a million dollar budget to reward the trades to do what they did on that job. It was not small. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Now, fast forwarding, you made, you know, after a very, uh, you know, diverse, interesting, successful career at this company, you made a decision to retire. Walk me through that thought process. Well, so, I mean, I did, I mean, I was, like I said, fortunate as being part owner, I was able to um, hit, a, hit a target financially. Um, it was a hard decision because I really enjoyed what I did. I also knew that I didn't want to keep doing the same thing, right? I wanted to try something different and I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, one of the other things that is an absolute, was a very, very important part of my decision was the frustration I had about the lack of diversity in, in the construction industry. And there was no one company that stood out for this, right? It was just, it was just confusing to me why we could not improve at the upper ranks. Um, so during my tenure with the, the first company I was with for, for two decades, we, we were able to kind of get that pipeline filled. We, we brought people in at entry level, um, a lot women, a lot of women, a lot more women than when I started out in the industry. And we saw that the, um, you know, the colleges were filling up with female engineers and, you know, more diverse engineering workforce. But then it was like this cliff, you know, they'd hit a certain level and just kind of fall off the cliff. And I kept being challenged with like, why is this? I don't understand, you know, is this, and it must just be the industry. The industry is just too inconvenient and too hard. I mean, like I said earlier, I moved, you know, a lot and moving isn't, I don't condone that. I'm just saying that's what I did. And then, you know, the hours are not so good. So if you're the primary caregiver, you know, getting to and from the job site at really early hours and having, you know, to hire a nanny, if you're in a remote location and you don't have family with you and all of these things kind of fall on the burden of, you know, uh, the more diverse employees and in, in particular women. So I was just, you know, I guess my conclusion was, well, this, you know, it's just, I, and I joke about it. We're, we're kind of like, you know, we're down there with dangerous fishing and mining, and we're just barely above that because there's just not very many, you know, diverse employees and especially women in our business. And I just don't know how to change it. And then I went on this, then this really interesting trip around the world. I met a lot of people. I started going to these really prestigious conferences that, um, that my old company sponsored me to do. Um, and, and I started learning about other businesses outside of our industry and the challenges they were having uh, with women in the economy and diverse workforces. And I'm talking like, you know, Wall Street Journal and Fortune Media and those types of things. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, 
We need to quit trying to change the people that are coming into our business and try to change the business to attract the people. Because, you know, our excuse of, well, our industry is just tough and inconvenient and hard, and that's why we just can't get diversity. It's, it's an old excuse, and it's not doing us any favors. You know, it's, it's not making us efficient. It's not making us inclusive. It's not making us innovative. So the goal then, and my passion now has shifted to, how do we change the industry to attract the best talent? Mm. Yeah. And I think you alluded to some of the things. How do we change the industry to attract more uh, diversity and all the things you discussed? Yeah. Well, so there, I mean, there, there are some great ideas. One of them is like really looking at transferable skills in you know, different industries. I, I, I do a lot of research on offsite manufacturing. I toured a lot of plants coast to coast. And um, there was one in particular that I was really impressed with. There was a paper mill plant that had shut down and they brought over a huge contingent of women and they had transferable skills into how they were going to do manufacturing. So we really promote like being able to look at attributes and competencies that aren't traditional as far as like, you know, I had this many years or this type of a degree because a lot of what we do in our industry, we train on site, right? I mean, I used to tell people I recruit at colleges because I know that you're interested in what I'm doing. You know, what we do for a living, not because you know how to do it. Right. <laughs> so it's um, so, and, and then here at compass, you know, we, we definitely put our money where our mouth is. I mean, we have in the U S we've got large campuses from coast to coast and hundred percent of our CMs are female. And it's a very intentional thing that we do. And some of them are, you know, young and new in the industry and have not been here before. And we work really hard on trying to develop them in their careers. And so far it's been a spectacular success. We really are enjoying it. And globally, we don't have all women CMs, but in the U.S., that just happens to be where we're at. And we're very proud of that. What's interesting is I know that <laughs> there's a little shade that gets thrown like, well, isn't that reverse discrimination? But honestly, when you say I have all male CMs, nobody blinks an eye, right? Because it's very typical and standard. Yeah. And headcount wise, what is that you said 100% in the U.S.? We probably have, oh gosh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm guessing it's somewhere in the in 30, 25 to 30 or so. And then, you know, and then there's also ways that you can like get creative again. It's all about this language. So let's say, you know, the, the trades are only 3% female right now. And you tell the contractors that you're hiring, hey, you know, if you can increase that to 5% and show me that you've done that, you know, there's, I've got something, I, there's something in it for you. Like, you know, we, you know, we, there's ways to incentivize a very small investment to go see how that needle can get moved. We also mandate, you know, that that we are welcoming to, you know, all genders, right? So it's like, I want PPE that's, you know, that is designed for women and not just for men, whether it's gloves or vest or, you know, whatever we use. And um, I want to make sure our facilities are welcoming to both genders. And so those are, these are mandates that we put on our job so that people get that message up front. And then, you know, it's really about, you know, the contractors who, who are embracing it and seeing the benefits of that. And then they, it's that ripple effect, you know, it's like the, the pebble in the pond and then they spread the word and the specialty contractors spread the word. And then they start, you start seeing more presence of more diversity. We encourage the call outs and the, um, you know, basically the recognition for a diverse group of people. It doesn't have to be just men or women, but any diversity where they come up with great ideas for continuous improvement. And when those ideas are adopted, we ask them to please make sure that you, you know, include the fact that this was through a diverse group of lenses, right? Because that really does help from an innovation standpoint, 
I always like to tell people when I talk about diversity and inclusion, you know, we're human. So we only know what we've been taught and what we've experienced. We don't know any more than that. And so if you don't have a diverse group of, you know, minds and um, experiences and, you know, cultures and backgrounds, then you're going to be stuck with very similar teachings and experiences. And, and you can't really broaden that innovation. I think it's, it's common, common sense, but not everyone thinks about it, right? Yeah, for sure. Now, what's the story of how you got back in? Three and a half years, you're out, you're traveling, you're learning from different industries, you know, going to events. What made you come back? What's the story there? Uh, okay, that's a pretty good story. When I was retired, my old company occasionally would ask me to come back in and help them with some of the large, you know, like, you know, multi-billion dollar type procurements. Um, actually, I had a, I was a really great compliment. I had a general superintendent who was being challenged with pursuing a large job and said, I don't want to do this without Nancy. <laughs> so I was very, um, was very humbled by that. But they asked me to come back. And of course, I never said no, because they were always so good to me. So I went to compete on a very large project and help them through that process. In that competition, I, I met some of the chiefs of enterprise and COOs of our joint venture partners. And so the, the crazy thing is we didn't get the job that we were pursuing and it was all fine, fine. Cause I was like still on my retirement track, but then a year or a little more than a year later, I was just randomly skiing in steamboat. And I ran into the chief of enterprise for this other firm and we had dinner and he said, what are you, what are you doing? What are you going to come back to work? And I said, well, I really want to, I just don't really want to run work. And he's like, we got a great spot for you as a national VP. We, we need someone to kind of help us take all these mergers and acquisitions and, and unify them. So that's how I got back into business. And what was interesting is being in the national role. That's also how I met my current CEO, Chris Crosby, because he was one of our national accounts. So, so I did what I had to do for that firm for like three and a half years or so. And as soon as I said, I'm, I'm uh, going to hang my hat up again, Mr. Crosby called me and said, would you mind coming and helping us, you know, build our company here? Yeah. So, and I have to say, I just want to point out like data centers are, that they're interesting because they're kind of new in the big construction world, right? The cloud's not that old, but what's great about it is, you know, it's, these are very disruptive companies that are trying to take the lead on this fourth industrial revolution. So like really trying to get innovative and trying to figure out how to wash, rinse, repeat and build out this digital infrastructure around the globe in the industry that I love is helping us, I believe, drag our industry into the future. Because if you can't get disruptive and um, figure out how to do things more efficiently with more innovation and more inclusion, then you probably aren't going to be relevant in the future. Yeah. So you talked about some of the inclusion, diversity side of the innovation that you're doing. In your current role, what else does innovation encompass? Like what, what other things are you thinking about and are interested in around innovation? Well, I mean, a, a really, really big push in the whole construction industry is, is um, obviously the greenhouse gas emissions and um, the ESG initiatives. So, um, you know, environmental, social governance, those are all very, very important to us. And what I like to point out is, you know, data centers do consume a lot of energy and it's not just about consumption, but that's a big part of it. So becoming more sustainable in that regard is super important to us. But so is like, you know, when you really step back, the construction industry itself is, you know, just shy of 
you know, half the world's CO2 footprint. It's huge. Um, most of that is from, you know, running, maintaining, operating, upgrading facilities. But a big chunk of it is from delivering as well, delivering these facilities. So I look at our industry as, you know, it's incumbent upon us to go and really try to move the needle in a very meaningful way when it, when it comes to being more sustainable and more responsible with the resources that we use. So that's one of the biggest initiatives we have from an innovative standpoint. And honestly, what I think is cool and fascinating about this is as we try to get better and more efficient on our schedules and um, everything that we do in our industry and with our production, that all relates back to being more sustainable, right? Doing more with less, having a set cadence, you know, being able to um, eliminate waste, all of those things really tie in with the ways in which we can be better as an industry. So it goes hand in hand. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the, the impact that the construction industry has overall on our footprint. And I know in construction, traditionally, change has been slow and there's risk aversion. Now, obviously, you know, being in different roles, you've sort of built up some ideas on how to get things done and, and, and sort of sort of ex- expedite it. What sort of tips would you give to someone that would want to make a difference? Like any, any sort of things that you pass on in terms of what you, has been really effective for you for to get people to buy in and to uh, facilitate change? It always starts with the person with a tool in their hand in our industry, okay? So it's boots on the ground. So if, if, you are, if you're going to approach how to improve our industry, always put those lenses on and think, if I'm the person with a tool in my hand, how can I get more tool time? How can I raise it from 50 to 60% up to 70 or 80%? So then when you really put those lenses on, you're thinking, well, what keeps, what keeps those, you know, those tradespeople from being more productive? And by the way, human nature is like, everyone wants to be productive. Nobody wants to rework. Nobody wants to, you know, wait on stuff. And when you really look at our industry, in spite of all of the technologies that we've developed over the past few decades, We haven't improved production at all. It's not a good thing. So I look at it and think, well, you know, I mean, if they're waiting on data, if they're waiting on materials, if they if they are, you know, having to go and assemble things from a lift or on the on the ground, you know, that's going to be less efficient. So this is where I get into like, you know, really understanding how to do advanced work packaging, how to do prefabrication, how to do offsite manufacturing, how to set a cadence up that becomes predictable and reliable so that when the tradespeople show up, they're not wondering what their task is that day. They know exactly what they have to do. They have all of their tools at their disposal. The materials are, you know, organized in a way that it's easy and efficient for them to install. You know, it's not that, you know, sexy when it comes to like brand new technologies, but it literally is what makes the biggest difference in our industry from a, you know, from an improvement standpoint. Now we do have, you know, great tools that can help us through technology to look at our designs, you know, and try to, you know, make the models better so that we can enhance and enable offsite manufacturing. That's a that's a bit of a conundrum we're dealing with right now. Or how do you pull way left and then start thinking about that from the very get go instead of waiting until you're in the field and then saying, "Now where's our opportunity?" That's really where the industry is right now. Yeah, that's wonderful. Anything that I did not ask you, but you wanted to talk about or leave with us as a lesson. I do think it's important for um, the industry to start looking at this, what I call the, well, what the industry calls scope three emissions Hmm. for greenhouse gas. So 
I'm encouraging, you know, designers and developers and contractors to really go and um, seek out and request uh, product declarations from their vendors so that they can understand what kind of materials that they're getting and which ones are more sustainable than other ones. There's lots of resources online for this. It's interesting because like, you know, this gets right in with, you know, the zero waste and the, um, and the abilities to use things that have embodied carbon. And there's technologies right now that are wonderful that we should be taking part of that aren't that hard to add into our designs. And, I, and I'll give you one quick example. So in our specifications over the years, concrete, one of the biggest offenders of greenhouse gas has always been kind of a lazy way of um, structural engineers saying, you know, I want a six sack mix. I want a five sack mix. I want to mix, you know, whatever. And they don't really fine tune those mixes because, you know, who has the time to do that? But as a developer who's, who does, you know, just gobs and gobs of concrete, I love concrete and I want to make it more sustainable. So we have really focused on having what we call the outcome-based specifications or, you know, not the ones that are prescriptive, but they're more performance, performance based on not just functionality, but also on sustainability. You can do that with almost any product, right? So I would recommend and encourage people to kind of study that and then make our business better through these really simple ways of looking at the lenses of performance space versus just picking what was always, you know, available. Yeah. Very good uh, lesson. Well, Nancy, you have a wonderful story and uh, thank you for uh, sharing your uh, knowledge. My pleasure. It's been great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.